We are embarking on a new series uh, this, on this Sunday, and uh, we're looking at Jesus' seven I am statements. And my prayer for you and my prayer for me is that uh, we would meditate on these passages of Scripture, uh, that we would make much of these passages of Scripture, that they would get into our spiritual system, and that we would, in very practical ways, uh, rest in the sovereignty of Jesus' I am statements. Uh, after all, we are followers of Christ, and the stronger our relationship is with Christ, uh, the better off we are as the people of God. Uh, the scripture has already been read in your hearing and has been read very well. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm kind of a long-winded preacher, so the more time I have, <laughs> you give me a better runway. <laughs> Amen. Amen. So we want to take a look at this particular passage of scripture and as it has already been said, you know, to, to join Jesus is to know him. And to know him is to follow him. And when we know who Jesus is, uh, there are many people who know about Jesus, they know of Jesus, but as disciples, we're called to know Jesus in an intimate, an intimate way. And the closer we are to Christ, the more clarity we have in terms of our calling and mission in life. Uh, when there's no distance or no separation between me and Christ, the more uh, I can hear his voice and the more clarity uh, we, we have. Uh, this particular passage of scripture, it, it, one of the, the beautiful things of this passage is that it's recorded in all four gospels. Uh, this is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. So that, that tells us something, that this is a very important uh, miracle. This is a very important pericope of Scripture uh, that we, we must give careful notice to. And in a real sense, when we look at this passage, in light of our, our mission and our vision to join Jesus in his mission to reconcile all people and uh, the, the idea of being a good neighbor and next door, uh, all of that plays into, comes into play in this passage of Scripture. In, in our text today, Jesus is indeed being a good neighbor. And in a real sense, he throws the biggest neighborhood block part party this world has ever seen. It was such a great success that all four gospel writers recorded. But I want us to zero in and focus in on this passage, and I want us to notice some particular themes in this passage. Uh, one of my mentors, one of my professors, Dr. Dwight Pentecost, in his book called Design for Discipleship, talks about there are three types of disciples. Uh, on when Jesus is engaged in ministry on the dusty roads of Jerusalem, there, there are three categories of disciples that come into play. And the first one he talks about is the curious disciple. Uh, the curious disciple is that person who they've heard about Jesus and they heard that he's giving sight to the blind, 
but they, they are curious. They're, they're, not, they're not about making any commitment. They're just curious. They, they want to follow along, follow the crowd uh, along, and just observe Jesus and see if Jesus uh, meets uh, up to all that is being said about him. And I would even venture to say that there are some curious people in our pews. There are some of us who are curious. We have not made any really co commitments to, to follow Christ, uh, so we're, we, we are disciples from a distance. But then there, is, there are those who are convinced. They are convinced that Jesus is the Christ, that they are convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, but they're still straddling the fence. They don't want to make any commitment. So they come in and they come out. Uh, they, they, they've seen Jesus perform miracles, so they're, they're con convinced of his deity and of his sovereignty, but they're not ready to make a commitment. And then there are those who are committed. Those who are committed, that they, they know beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and they have committed their lives to follow him. And they have committed their lives to, to walk with him and to join him in his mission to reconcile all people. And so the, the goal in the process of discipleship is to move a person from being curious to convince to committed. And when we move from being curious to convinced to committed, we begin to see Jesus in the beauty and glory of who he is. We see that in this particular text because there are 12 disciples who have followed Jesus, who are following Jesus, and they are committed. And because they are committed, they see uh, Jesus from a different angle. They see Jesus uh, as the Son of God. They see Jesus. They are exposed to the glory of Jesus Christ. So let's look at this, this, this movement. Let's look at this, this setting. Uh, and we, when we look at this setting, let's start. Uh, we read it at verse 5, but there's something we need to read before verse 5. Verses 1 through 4 says, After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs. I want you to highlight that. They saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. Now, I love what John does is John walks us through recognizing Jesus as God uh, as John walks us through the Gospel of John chapter 1, there's a theme that continues to uh, infuse itself through each chapter. And the, the theme is that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And every miracle Jesus performs, there is a relationship between grace and truth. Uh, that Jesus' grace capacity is is. Is, is out of this world, that Jesus' capacity to extend grace and mercy is, is out of this world. And so we see this constant relationship between grace and truth. 
And also we see, brothers and sisters, and this, this is my, my first point, we see that Jesus challenges his disciples. He challenges us to be participators and not spectators in the mission of God. He challenges us to be participators and not spectators in the mission of God. Well, you see in verse 5, the scripture tells us that when he looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. And I love the way Philip responded. He said, Peter, Peter, Philip answered, answered here, six months wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves, poor man's bread, and two fish. But what are they among so many? And I, I began to ask myself the question, why did, why did he ask Philip this question? Uh, why not Peter? Uh, why is Peter so quiet here? Uh, why, why did he ask Philip and not John? Uh, why is Philip singled out? Why is he the person uh, uh, that Jesus asked this question of? Perhaps it's because Philip is from Bethsaida. Uh, this is his hometown. He knows where all the grocery stores are. <laughs> he knows where to get the good deals. Uh, perhaps uh, it's Philip, it's his time to experience a teachable moment. Now, the last time I preached here, we talked about pop quizzes. Uh, maybe this is Philip's pop quiz, or maybe this is his exam, because this is much bigger than a pop quiz. But nevertheless, Philip and Andrew are a microcosm of all of us who are sitting in the pews. And we're all rational beings, and, and our first inclination is to think in the natural and not in the spiritual. And before we judge Philip and Andrew, let us look calmly and honestly at ourselves. Because we have maybe in some ways responded like Philip, or we may have in some ways responded like Andrew. But you see, Philip and Andrew, in essence, were saying that we don't have the resources to feed such a large number of people. We are unable to meet the physical needs of this crowd. Philip and Andrew were both thinking in the natural and had not come to the full realization of who Jesus was. And you know, being the pastor of discipleship, I got to get discipleship in here. Well, you see, discipleship is a process of moving from confusion to clarity about who Jesus is and who, he, who we are in relationship to him. It's a journey of moving from unbelief to belief. 
because our identity is inextricably tied to his identity. And when we get a clearer understanding of who Jesus is, we have a better understanding of who we are. But also I think what is being said here is that from a theological standpoint, we, we have to come to grips with his sovereignty and our solutions. In other words, sometimes we, 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 we are so solution-minded that we forget that it's the journey, it's what God is trying to do in us than what he's trying to do in a particular situation. And when we come to grips with who Jesus is, then our solution is more of a way of seeing that it's a process. But brothers and sisters, just like Philip and Andrew, we have to come to grips with the sovereignty of God. How do you usually respond to an impossible situation? When there's a problem in your life and it doesn't seem to have a solution, how do you respond? Do you try to think of a solution that will solve the problem? That's the natural inclination. And if you can't find a solution, do you just ignore the problem and act like it doesn't exist? The good news in this text is that the God we serve is a solution-minded Savior. Sometimes we, we have to be like Ezekiel when God says to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, in the valley of dry bones, can these bones live? Ezekiel said, Lord, you know, because you're sovereignty. And maybe that would have been a better response for Philip. He would have said, Philip said, Lord, you know, you're sovereign. You know the answer to this. Sometimes when God gives us a pop quiz or when he gives us an exam, uh, we get an F. Sometimes when God gives us a pop quiz or an exam, uh, we get an incomplete. And I think that's what, what is happening here, that Philip gets an incomplete. Amen, somebody. And I'm so glad that God gives us an incomplete because it's, it's a journey, it's a process and this is what we see happening in this passage of Scripture when we come to grips with God's sovereignty and the lack of our solutions. Kind of reminds me of a story that was told of a man who was flying in an helicopter, and as he was flying over this major highway, he saw an 18-wheeler in front of a car, and this car was trying to get around the 18-wheeler because it was... It was on a, a two-lane highway, and, and as he tried to get around, a car kept coming. And then when it was clear, he had double lines, and so he couldn't get around it. And then when he tried to get around again, he began to notice that he was going a, over a hill. So there was never a right time for him to pass the 18-wheeler. So the guy flying in the helicopter said, if I could just communicate to the man in the car and 
the car and give him a signal and say, now it's okay to drive around the 18-wheeler. And likewise, brothers and sisters, when we recognize the sovereignty of God, uh, that there are some things you may be trying to get around, and it's, it, you, 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 it's, your timing is always wrong, and God is saying to you, if I could just communicate to him, if I could just communicate to her and let her or him know that now is the time to move, now is the time to pass this insurmountable challenge or this mountain. And when we really rest in God's sovereignty, when we really understand who God is, God gives us signals, God gives us spiritual discernment when it's time to move and when it's time to, to stay where you are. When we're prayed up, when we understand and when our lines of communication between us and God are clear, God knows or he gives us spiritual ears to hear and eyes to see when it's time to move and when it's time to stay put. Sometimes we jump ahead of God. Sometimes we try to go around that truck we try to go around that 18-wheeler and we learn a lesson and it hits us right in the face. Amen, somebody. So I challenge you today to, to be a participator and not a spectator in the mission of God because Mark talks about this same passage and he says that the disciples told Jesus, Lord, you send the crowd away. Lord, you get them something to eat. But in this passage, John looks at it from a different angle and he says, now, this is a teachable moment for Philip. This is a teachable moment for, for the disciples and that they are invited to participate in the work that Jesus is doing. And what is really being said to us here today, brothers and sisters, is that God has not called any of us to sit the bench. Amen, somebody. God has given each and every one of us a gift, a talent. He's given each and every one of us something to do. He wants all of us to participate in his mission. He wants all of us to work in such a way that we are reconciling people unto him, that we are playing a role and participating in the work that Jesus is doing in the world, in your neighborhood, in the church, in the community. We are not to sit back and spectate and say, let other people do it. And so brothers and sisters, I, I just want to encourage you today that not only should we be participators and spectators in the mission of God, but Jesus also calls us to understand that we, that we are called to a life of compassionate service. And so there's a relationship between compassion and capacity. But we see here in this text also that Philip and Andrew said, Lord, we don't have the capacity to do this. We don't have the capacity to feed 5,000 men. And one writer said that it, it could possibly be at least 20,000 people here. Because 5,000 men and women and children, it could possibly be about 20,000 people. So I can imagine Philip looking over the 
over the crowd. I can imagine the disciples looking over the crowd and said, Lord, we don't have the capacity to do this. What are you asking us to do? And I'm surprised Philip didn't respond. But here we find Jesus, it says he knows what he's going to do. Jesus, from the very get-go, knew what he was getting ready to do, but what he was trying to do is to stretch the disciples' capacity. You see, the, the closer you get to Jesus, and the more you realize who Jesus is, your capacity increases. Your capacity to be a channel of God's grace. Your capacity to be a practitioner of God's love. Your capacity to, to be a person of peace, that your capacity increases because your strength and your power comes from Christ. So we, we see here, I just love the way Jesus does this because it, it seems like Jesus also has a, a master's degree in organizational leadership. Andrew does come up with an answer. Andrew says, Lord, there's a, a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. And Jesus says, bring it here to me, bring it here to me. And then he tells the disciples, go amongst the crowd and instruct them to sit in groups of 50 and 100. Now, that's organizational leadership if, I, if, if I've ever heard of it. Instruct them to sit in groups of 50 and 100, and then he takes the bread, and I love the fact that this, this, there's a contrast between this lad and the disciples because we don't know the lad's name. All we know is that he was willing to give up his lunch. Now, I would have to believe if there's 20,000 people there, somebody else got a lunch. <laughs> I know, that's just my imagination. But this lad was willing to give the little bit that he had to Jesus. The scripture says that Jesus took the bread and, and he looked up to heaven and he thanked God for the bread and the fish and somewhere between Jesus putting the bread in the baskets and the, the disciples passing out the bread and the fish, something happened in the midst of their participation in what God was doing. Something was, was going on. So as Jesus blessed the bread and the fish, something happened that the fish and the bread began to multiply and I would like to think that, you know, whenever you put something in Christ's hands, it's different than what, when it's in our hands. It, it, when five barley loaves and some fish is in my hand, it's just a lunch. <laughs> but when five barley loaves and two fish are in Jesus' hands, it's a buffet. <laughs> Amen, somebody. <laughs> that when we put the, the little bit we have, the little bit of time, the little bit of talent, the little bit of treasures in Jesus' hands, uh, he can take what we have and multiply it and make much out of it. 
You may be asking the question, well, Pastor, I don't have but a little bit. I don't have but a little bit of time. I don't have but a little bit of treasures. I don't have but a little bit. But if you give Jesus a little bit of that, he will bless you with more. Because you begin to understand that you are just a steward of what God has given you. That whatever God has given you, whatever talents God has given you, whatever treasures God has given you, you are not to sit on that, but you have been blessed to bless somebody else. This is what we see in this passage of Scripture that when we serve alongside Jesus, when we participate with Jesus, see, when we serve, we get a chance to see what God does. God can make a miracle out of a mess. And I think that's, that's why many times the church sometimes don't have enough resources because God never intended for us to have enough resources. Because if we have too much resources, we forget that he is the source. When we have too much time, when we have too much treasures, uh, when we think that we have come up with all of this with our own ingenuity and our own genius, then we begin to worship the gift more than we worship the giver. And sometimes God has to deplete our resources because sometimes we get our source mixed up with our resources. And if we begin to treat the home that we live in like it's a, a, a source rather than a resource, God gets jealous about that. When we begin to, to treat our job like it's, a, like it's the source rather than a resource, because don't get it twisted, brothers and sisters, that if God didn't wake you up this morning, you wouldn't be able to enjoy your resources. You wouldn't be able to enjoy your car. You wouldn't be able to enjoy your, your breakfast. You wouldn't be able to enjoy anything. So you have to recognize that God is the source. And everything that we have that's temporary is just a resource. Okay, I got three minutes left. Let me finish. See, the text in this passage, when we get to 32 and 35, verses 32 to 35, it's important that we understand that God has each and every one of us on a spiritual cur curriculum to move us beyond the realm of human reason into the realm of faith. Every physical, emotional, psychological challenge that we're faced with has spiritual implications, has a spiritual reality behind it. You see, God is not trying to in, increase our IQ. He's trying to increase our FQ, our faith quotient. God, God wants us to be not just smarter, but he wants us to have, uh, have a, a, a faith that sees what he sees or trusts what he sees. And see, God wants to in increase our FQ, and the more our faith quotient is increased, the, the greater our capacity that we have to serve. So we see in this last part of this passage in verses 32 to 35, Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread 
from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. They were continuing to think in the, the natural, and Jesus is preaching in the spiritual. We find in the early, in, in, in verse 15, that, that when Jesus had performed this miracle, that it says that they wanted to make him the king by force. They wanted to make him the king, and Jesus didn't want any part of that, so it says that he withdrew from the crowd and went to a solitary place to pray. And what I love about Jesus is that whenever people were trying to elevate him, he always went somewhere to pray, to talk to the Father. In other words, Jesus' private time with God gave him public power with people. And Jesus always had this relationship that whenever he spent private time with his father, he had the power to deal publicly with problem people. <laughs> Amen, somebody. And you've got to be prayed up if you're going to deal with problem people. Because it takes wisdom. And God's ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so God wants to give us some of his power to deal with the challenges and vicissitudes of life. What we also see here, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus is, is giving them physical, physical bread in the feeding of the 5,000 pointed to a greater reality of him being spiritual bread that will satisfy their spiritual appetite for God. I love the way St. Augustine said, he says, the power indeed was in the hands of Christ, but those five loaves were as seeds, not indeed committed to the earth, but multiplied by him who made the earth. That five barley loaves and two fish in, in, in Jesus' hands, he could make a miracle out of it. And that's what I want to say. We, we got to learn how to put things in God's hands because he, he can handle it better than we can. I know some of us are control freaks and we want to we wanna control a situation because we want a, des a desired outcome that will make us feel comfortable. But when it's in God's hands, you're not going to always feel comfortable, but you, I, you can rest assured, brothers and sisters, that when it's in his hands, you're going to see who Jesus really is, that he is the bread of life. It's like the story told about a little boy who went to a corner store, and there was this big barrel of peanuts and he asked the store owner, can, sir, can I, how much are these, these peanuts? And he, just, he said, it's, it's one cent for half a pound. And the little boy said, can I get some peanuts? And so he went over to the barrel and he put the peanuts in his hands, but in his mind, he said, that's, that's not enough. 
And the store owner said, what's taking you so long? Why, why are you taking so long to get the peanuts? Just get the peanuts and put them in the bag. And the little boy kept looking at the peanuts. He said, this is, this is not enough. In his mind, he said, this is not enough. And then the store owner got so mad, he went over and grabbed a big, with his big hands, he grabbed a big, a, a big thing of peanuts and put them in the bag. And he said, now, get out of here. And the little boy said, that's exactly what I wanted. Because <laughs> your hands are bigger than my hands. What am I saying? God's hands are bigger than your hands. And sometimes the things that you put in your hands, you, you can't handle it. And, and God says, why, why don't you put it in my hands? Because my hands are bigger than your hands. You, you can trust your life in my hands. You can trust me with your children. You can trust me with your job. You can trust me with your finances. If you just put everything in my hands, uh, you can trust me. I don't know where you are today, but I want to encourage you today to put it in his hands. Put your problems put your challenges, put it in his hands. Trust in the sovereignty of God. Know that God is the source and not a resource. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the lesson of the five loaves. Lord, we pray that just like Philip and Andrew, that you would increase our grace capacity to be compassionate, Increase our capacity to be practitioners of your love. And Lord, we'll be careful to give you the praises and the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.